This is the Andrew Lake Podcast, and in this episode, we're talking about the album, Volume 3, The Subliminal Verses, by Slipknot. Slipknot, a band named after a suicide implement. How do I sum up this force of violence, this gnashing of teeth, this sweat, flesh and bones? One life, nine masks and 18 hands that will rip you apart. Pain, anger, disgust, and a distaste for all that is in the world. Slipknot is a band that made its name for itself by being more violent, more aggressive, and more hateful than any other metal band around. It's a cliche staple, or it's a common aspect of metal to be violent. But these guys carried it off as if it was real. These guys carried their pain in a very personal way. And this was coupled with complex music, original tastes, layers, dynamics, the cutting edge of music composition in the world of metal. This band rose to prominence by promoting their sickness, their personal distrust with the people in their life, their family dynamics, and the negativity that they've felt their whole life. Just before Volume 3 came out, there was a DVD of them performing some of the best songs from their first two albums. That DVD opens with the song, People Equals Shit. A broad statement, and a punching statement, a judgment of the world, and something that rings true for a lot of people. And they scream it at the top of their lungs, they thrash it, they smash it, and they tear the stadium to shreds as they blast out this anthem, People Equals Shit. It's against this background of violence and pain and aggression that Slipknot released their third album, Volume 3, The Subliminal Verses. Their first two albums had started with their stock standard aggression. Full sounds, full throttle, all systems go, systems firing, fire burning. The furnace cranked up to volume 11. But volume 3 is different. Volume 3 starts with a subtlety. Volume 3 starts with regret, looking back, expressing how things should have been but weren't. Volume 3 
heralds a new layer of emotional complexity for the band. The vocals of that true soul, Corey Taylor, ring through with a subtle hint of that Nirvana smashing pumpkins, deftones, and that tenderness that he sings from his heart. You can tell that he's lived these words. He's owning these lyrics. And that's the tenderness that Volume 3 starts with on its first track, Prelude 3.0. Perhaps ironically, the chorus sings, Now it's over. A juxtaposition of saying that we begin at the end. There's nothing else that we can do when everything is over, and we're establishing that right from the start. Compositionally speaking, Prelude 3.0 is in three time, rather than 4-4 or a square time, which means it's based on triplets. And the compositional device of triplets appears again and again at key points throughout this album, linking this connection between the themes of the music and the music composition itself. And I really want to hit home this point that Volume 3 is different in that it has a wider spectrum of emotional exploration because it includes those tender moments and it has that vulnerability coming through. Corey Taylor has mentioned in interviews that Volume 3 was the album that he was creating with the band at the same time as he was getting sober and kicking his dark habits, which if you know anything about his book, Seven Deadly Sins, are dark, violent, and vicious as anyone has ever experienced. And that's a key thing that needs to be understood about this album, is that it's at a key turning point in the lives of all these musicians, both artistically and personally, and they put that personal experience into the music. I have toyed against, well, I've toyed with playing excerpts and not playing excerpts with this review, and I decided against playing excerpts because I've been in trouble with copyright before when doing album reviews, and I really want this one to go out there, so I'm going to assume that you've all heard this album, and chances are if you're listening to this album review, you've probably listened to this album about a thousand times. So just keep it in mind what we're talking about, and unfortunately I won't be playing any excerpts from this album. So moving along, the second track is The Blister Exists. So this is much more rocking, this is much more powerful, this is the anthem-like style that we're more used to, and there's an array of complexity in the percussion, there are details to the layers for which the two front of house drummers play and interact with the, the lead percussionist, Joey Jordison, on drum set, and the composition makes use of key devices which are staples of the Slipknot sound, staples such as the dummy chorus. Typically, the song structure goes 
verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge. And in this style of writing, Slipknot goes verse, dummy chorus, verse, dummy chorus, and then the real chorus before a bridge or a breakdown. This adds a wider range of height and complexity to the composition of the song. They also use the technique of stripping away layers and having textural drama by dropping out everything except those marching drums in a distinctly obvious marching rhythm. And then there's an interplay between the different sections of the song. The lead guitar rolls are placed over different sections. Vocals are brought up and brought down as the instruments interact with each other and clash with each other, representing that inner turmoil that these musicians have with how they see themselves in the world and in relation to one another. 3-0 is no exception to the brilliance of compositional mastery that this band exhibits. The perfect blend between motivic development, structural relations, continuity, and patterns that evolve The drumming is absolutely spastic, it's technical, it's intricate, and it's beyond anything more than I could have imagined when I first got into Slipknot. The reason I was drawn to Slipknot was because of the drumming. It was at an age when I was very susceptible to new music. I was just starting to come out of my shell and discover that there was such a thing as music other than what had been fed to me. I was learning about jazz drumming and jazz piano, and I was getting lessons in these things, and gaining more and more of a thirst for technical music and technical understanding. And a friend of mine kept raving about this band, Slipknot, and this drummer. Oh, you've got to hear this drummer, Slipknot. It's a metal band and it's better than anything he's ever heard before. And this really pissed me off because I knew that metal was not as good as jazz. Jazz drumming has a subtlety to it. It's got a complexity to its rhythms that is beyond the squareness of metal. At the same time as I was going through this stage, I was starting to question my Christian upbringing. I was starting to notice that the adults in my life didn't have much more of an understanding about life than I did. I was asking questions about the nature of the Bible, of our society, of what it means to understand our place in the world. I was feeling more and more every day like the ground beneath me was eroding away. And these two factors of wanting to understand the drumming of Slipknot, and hear from a band that had a different view on the world, which I knew my parents would never let me listen to, led me to become highly interested in what this drummer and this music has to offer. So I bought this album in secrecy, without my parents knowing, one time when we were at the mall. And I put it on as the harshest of critics. And what I found was something so significant 
and so shocking. These guys were singing about things that were at the heart of my worries. They were expressing the doubts that I had. And I couldn't make sense of how it is that a band like this could exist. It seemed ethereal. It seemed far off. It seemed like this magical thing of meaning. And it seemed so powerful that I finally had something more juicy to my everyday feelings. I opened up the front cover of the liner notes of this album. I didn't even know that these guys wore masks until I opened that front cover. And the whole artwork, the whole vibe, the darkness, the shadows, the turquoise colours, the scattered edges, just appealed to everything that I was feeling in my life at that time. I was glad that I'd found something meaningful in a world that was eroding for me. I was glad that I'd found people that could express authentic feelings, no matter what the colour of those feelings. And I knew these guys were serious when their statement about the album was that track four, Duality, is an expression of the faith of the whole band. This song is as complex as any other on the album, in that it lets the riff speak through, it has syncopation in its rhythms, and there's also a wide vocal range. There's more of a rap and spoken word influence coming through, as well as those high melodic sounds. At points, Corey Taylor seems to moan and groan, and it's not so much about a screaming style rather than a personal expression. The scream of a metal singer is somewhat institutionalized now. It's somewhat stock standard and monotonal. When I listened to Slipknot, it didn't ever feel like he was screaming in a way that was black and white. It was screaming in a way that was colourful and from the need to do it. It was an expression of how he really is and the appropriate response to his condition. And that's why I think so much authenticity rings through in these songs. Track five is called Opium of the People. Opium of the People is a reference to a Karl Marx quote. It is one of the most paraphrased quotes from the 18th century philosopher that religion is the opium of the people. The full quote from Karl Marx translates as Religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature the heart of the heartless world, and the soul of the soulless conditions. It is the opium of the people. End quote. Now, I don't know if Slipknot are as culturally and philosophically aware to understand the deeper implications of this saying. Usually, when people say religion is the opium of the people, they mean that it's a bad thing. It needs to be rejected. It's the thing that is poisoning us. But with this larger quote in mind, that religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of the heartless world, it shows a desperation which is 
wanting to cry out with more meaning and more expression because we've got nowhere to find meaning. It's because we feel that there's nothing left for us to express which is meaningful. And when you've got nothing to express, the thing that you express is that nothingness. It's the nihilistic undertone of Slipknot that comes out in this song. There are religious overtones to this song, Opium of the People, about how he won't give another life. He's not prepared for Judgment Day. It's wrong to follow these sorts of paradigms, these sorts of ideas. And Opium of the People is also a technically brilliant song and compositionally highly dramatic in the way that the different layers fall away and build back up. These first five songs, The Prelude, The Blister Exist, Three Nil, Duality, and Opium of the People, all run together quite quickly. The end of each track runs quickly into the start of the next, and there's no real gap, and that was one of the striking things about how the album flows. You never feel that each song is finished before another thing is starting on top of you. And it's this forward momentum that really gives Slipknot its spark. It's one of those staples that it has, which is that it can move your attention forward and always use the active voice of its compositions. But when we get to track six, there is a intermission. And this is a fully acoustic song. It's a fully tender song. There are acoustic guitars, all sorts of percussions and orchestrations. And it really weighs out that intensity that the first few tracks have in balancing the highs and the lows. It's a song that is self-reflective. It's a song that is turning inwards about their own state of affairs. It asks questions about what it means to have these feelings and where they're coming from, which is very different to the aggression that the first few songs have. When we get to track 7, things are cranked back up to volume 11. The pace continues, the interaction, the layers, are maintained through this song, track 7, Welcome. Technical mastery, interactions, layers, compositional devices, juicy structures, sudden turns, hits, and beats all interact into a concise and well-polished, aggressive song. Track 8 is Vermilion. It is the first track of the album in which the narrator makes reference to the gender of the characters in their story. It's the first time he uses the word she. Up until this point, the Lyrics have been quite ambiguous as to whether the character that the protagonist is in relation to is a person, or God, or some other entity, or life in general. But here it's obvious that it's an intimate relationship that the singer is expressing about. We also see a return of this idea of triplet time, and Vermilion has a complex interplay in its rhythms between 4-4 four, four 
and triplet time. There are times when the 4-4 is being grouped in triplets, and there are times when it modulates completely into triplet time, thus showing a transition from these different dualities and trios and the inner turmoil between the relationship of forces and the factors at play that cause tension within the protagonist. Track 8, Vermilion, really bridges this intimacy and aggression quite well. It's a good blend between the different emotions, and it's somewhere between the fully aggressive complexities of the song Welcome and the tender softness of the previous track Circle, which is fully acoustic. Vermilion blends into Pulse of the Maggots, the next track, again following this idea that each song is a chapter that leads on to another. Pulse of the Maggots is the staple of aggression for the album. It is as if Korn and Slayer had a baby, and that baby is on steroids. Pulse of the Maggots goes full circle back to aggression, hate, anger, tearing your throat out. And it does that with the full grandiosity of screaming, rhythmic syncopation, complicated layers, interacting parts, sirens going off, samples being blasted, and a whole array of different avalanches that happen within the music. Track 10 is Before I Forget. And this is the first song, and perhaps the only song on the album, where it doesn't fall into this dichotomy of aggression and tenderness and vulnerability. Before I Forget is possibly the first Slipknot song that ever has a positive message to it. Of course, it's clouded in distaste and slime, but ultimately the message is quite positive, that I will remember before I forget. I was a creature before I could stand. And it really stands out, this song on the album, because it doesn't fit into the emotional range. And for a long time, I really didn't like this song because it is such a sore thumb. And it is more on the hard rock side rather than the metal side. So it's a good example of fleshing out the mediums and the in-betweens of the emotional spectrum. And it's a totally new direction for Slipknot because it's got that undercurrent of a positive message, perhaps giving us an idea of where this band can evolve to in the future. Track 11 is Vermilion Part 2. So it's a acoustic version of our Vermilion Part 1, which was back at track 8. And this transitions well into The Nameless. The Nameless is significant compositionally because it's the song that has both the full aggression and the full tenderness within it. And it makes sense that this song is late in the album because you really have to warm up to being used to hearing these two different extremes next to each other. While earlier in the album we have entire songs that transition between tenderness and aggression, 
In The Nameless, it happens in the song itself. And the last chorus brings back a marriage of the two emotions. And that makes it a beautiful expression of what it means to have emotional complexity, which is that you have two feelings happening at once. And there are two major components which are extreme to your own feeling and your own experience. And this is what duality is all about. This is what the subliminal verses is all about, because we don't really understand our emotions until we dissect them. And perhaps the subliminal nature is that we have these feelings, and there's these things that we don't understand between them, and the way they are made up and the dynamics that are between them are harder for us to see. And that's what ties in the theme of the subliminal verses with this track, The Nameless. I spent some time thinking about clowns. One of the members of Slipknot is the clown. He wears his cherry nose and bandages soaked in blood. There are times when his smile is slashed and his brains are showing. Vomit is not an uncommon prop for this clown. And I asked myself, what is it about clowns that is so unsettling? Clowns are usually, originally, seen at children's parties. They are seen as innocent entertainers. They are the ones that bring a smile to us. The ones that give us a laugh, that perform magic, make a balloon for us and brighten our day. So why is it that the clown is a character in this band of nihilism and hate and thrashing of teeth? And what is it that's so unsettling about this clown? The answer I think of is this, that clowns manipulate our emotions. Clowns play on our innocence. They can see beyond what's making us happy. And therefore, it can be used against us. And that's why at a certain age, the child becomes a kid. And that's when they can start to develop a fear of the clown. Because they can see that there's more to their emotions than they understand of themselves. And not only that, but there are people out there that can pull at the strings of our emotions and manipulate them without us even knowing. And not just the dark emotions, but our happiest, most innocent, and most childlike, magical emotions. It's this which makes a clown so unsettling. And it's in the song, The Virus of Life, that these dynamics are explored. Innocence. Intimacy. Close connection with a person. These are the things that are manipulated and brought into the dirt, into the darkness. It's time to play. It's time to be afraid. You're relaxed, you're sublime, you're amazing. 
you don't even know the danger you're facing. The imagery of this song, The Virus of Life, is a brilliant interplay of horror themes. And if you can get on board with the innocence that it's trying to manipulate, you can see that it's really quite something astonishing. After some choking and splattering of the guts and vocal cords, the virus of life finishes with a transition into its last track, the closer, Danger, Keep Away, title that implies the disconnection that the protagonist feels with the rest of the world, thus summing up the entire album. It's also a composition that ends in three time, back where we started at the first track of the album. And it ends with self-reflection, just as it did at the start. Volume 3 is the masterpiece by Slipknot. It is their greatest album. It is their pinnacle piece. The tracks all relate to each other. They explore the most complex themes. It gets at the heart of the issues and emotional explorations that the band is known for. The compositional devices are beyond anything else that you can find anywhere on a Slipknot album, because the first few albums were that raw, grungy aggression, and the following albums were when the band made a transition into that highly produced, highly developed and refined sound. So Volume 3 was recorded in a haunted house with the musicians all living together, whereas the next album, All Hope Is Gone, was much more studio-based. The riffs are gone through with a fine cone detail. The intricacies and details are ironed out and isolated in a more plastic sort of way. And that's what makes Volume 3 unique to Slipknot. And if you want to listen to just one album from Slipknot, then I recommend Volume 3, The Subliminal Verses. As a late teenager, I must have listened to this album hundreds of times if not thousands of times. There must have been weeks where I had it on repeat constantly. I also transcribed and learnt to play all of the drum parts on every song, although I don't think my execution would have been 100% because these are extremely technical parts. For a few years, though, I forgot about Slipknot. I became interested in other things and my emotional intelligence developed and changed. But there was a point where I looked at the role that Slipknot played in my development as a teenager, and in my coming into understanding of what the world is like. And I don't know if it was an entirely positive thing. Does a band express in ways that connect with feelings we already have, or does the music we listen to cause the feelings that we have and cause us to amplify expressions of things? And if negative emotions are your way of feeling alive, then I don't know if you're really someone 
that's allowed to put your hand up as a beacon of what life really is.